For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet a Tucson police officer who is part of a group that's honoring the U.S. flag. Explore the legacy of naturalist Edward Abbey with Sean Prentice, the author of Finding Abbey. Visit a Tucson car show with classic appeal and hear Molly McCloy's story about how she once became a bully when she was a child. That's all coming up next on Arizona Spotlight. Sunday is Flag Day, commemorating the date in 1777 when the Stars and Stripes was adopted by the Second Continental Congress. Flag Day has a special significance for two Tucson police officers and the growing organization they founded. They established Flags for the Flagless in 2014 with the goal of honoring veterans and embellishing the urban landscape. Tony Paniagua talks with Charlie Foley, co-founder of this nonprofit organization. So how did Flags for the Flagless begin? I was in San Diego uh, about a year and a half ago with a friend of mine who we had a long discussion about giving back and what he was doing, giving back his time. I had a six-hour drive back from San Diego to Tucson, and it got me thinking, you know, what am I doing to make a difference? How am I giving back to my community? And when I got back to Tucson, I started noticing lots of flagpoles, empty flagpoles. And then you figured, let's start working on these flagpoles and putting flags on them as well. And then you also came across a coworker and you inspired him to join you. I did. I, I was not in the military. I come from a long history of military uh, members in my family. But there's a coworker of mine, uh, Bradley Clark, who is a 20-year combat Army veteran, has served multiple tours overseas. And I knew I uh, could use him to help me with this project. So I reached out to him. He thought about it for about 30 minutes and he jumped on it. And we've been going full speed ever since last Flag Day. So you started a year ago and up to now, any idea on the number of flags that have been raised on the flagpoles, given out, et cetera? Flagpoles in Tucson, we've put up 50 now throughout Tucson. Uh, 76 flags now are in classrooms, uh, something I was not anticipating. But we have been contacted by different schools throughout Tucson. And to date, we have put up 76 flags. So why do this, Charlie Foley? You know, someone years ago put up these flagpoles for a reason, whether there was the patriotism that was there, whether the world was uh, at war. A lot of these flagpoles, World War II, predate World War II. Uh, I wanted to bring that back. There was a sense of patriotism at one time in this country, community working together. I feel by putting flags up throughout the community, people seeing that um, would bring us together, um, knowing that we do live in the greatest country in the world, and we need to be reminded of that. And I figured more flags on flagpoles is a good way to do that. And I've asked you about this in the past. Do flags have a political party, if you will? A lot of times they seem to be taken one way or the other. What would you like to say about well, that? Well, I would like to say the flag belongs to all of us. It doesn't belong to one political party or another. I want to make it very clear this is not a political agenda that we have. This is simply for the community, for the people of Tucson, putting flags up. Maybe a political party might be associated with the flag, but the flag belongs to all of us. No matter where you come from, no matter what you believe, that American flag belongs to all of us. 
And you and Officer Clark are doing this on your own time. This is obviously not a Tucson Police Department uh, situation. Correct. Every flag that we have raised has been on our own time. Every classroom flag that we've presented has been on our own time. The city of Tucson, the taxpayers are not funding us to do this project. This is all Brad and I in our own time, maybe taking vacation time, um, but this is all on, on our own. The city and the uh, Tucson Police Department is not funding us in any way to do this. In the past year, you've held uh, three significant events, many others along the way, but on July 4th, 2014, what happened? We raised five American flags throughout the city. That's the first time that I'm aware of that that's ever happened. Uh, we went to five different locations. Uh, we raised five flags um, throughout the city, um, and it was a great moment. And then that night, actually, my family and I went down to one of the flags and watched fireworks going off behind it with a brand new flag that had been on flagpole 20, 30 years in some cases. September 11th, 2014? September 11th, we raised two internment flags outside of the Chase Bank at 2 East Congress. That was a very significant moment because those flags have not flown in front of that building in close to 70 years. So we put two new flags in front of the Chase Bank building downtown. And then you are getting ready to go to Brooklyn, New York, next uh, Friday, June 12th. Brooklyn, New York. We were contacted via social media. There's a school in Brooklyn, New York, PS277 in Brooklyn. They're in need of 30 classroom flags. They have flags there, but they're old, faded, some are tattered. I was contacted, asked if I could help them, and I could. I have a connection, a family member, a friend back there, and they instantly jumped at the opportunity to provide 30 flags to the school in Brooklyn, New York. And then you'll be back in Tucson for a 4th of July event. 4th of July, we're going to raise 13 internment flags at the same time, 9 a.m. I have 13 flagpoles, 13 internment flags. I have 13 different groups, all raising 13 flags at 9 a.m. on July 4th. Internment flags, what are those, Charlie? Internment flags are given to a family, um, thanking them for the service of that family member in the uh, military. Could have been someone who maybe killed in action, someone who just passed away, but they served in the military. You get an internment flag. A lot of those flags cover the casket. It's presented to the first closest family member. 13 different families have given us their internment flags. That's special. That is someone to us. That's uh, someone special to that family to give us that flag. So we in turn want to do something special, and that's doing our July 4th um, remembrance, if you will, of those 13 families. And then finally, why are you passionate about this program, and what do you hope it is in five or 10 years from now? If I could get this nationwide, which it looks like it's uh, it might be going that way, going to New York, I have some people in New York that want to talk to me. Um, the gentleman that actually influenced me to start this, he has mentioned that he would like to take this nationwide. If we can get more flags up throughout the country, that's all I want. You know, just that patriotism, sense of community throughout the country. And if that takes an American flag on an empty flagpole, that's what I'd like to see. Officer Charlie Foley of Flags for the Flagless, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. There's more information about Flags for the Flagless on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. The words and philosophy of Edward Abbey have spread far from his beloved Southwest desert since his death in Tucson in 1989. He was age 62. He asked his closest friends to take him from his deathbed to an undisclosed place in the Sonoran Desert and bury him in his sleeping bag. That legend loomed large over author Sean Prentice and his personal quest to follow in Edward Abbey's footsteps. Prentice retraced Abbey's path across Arizona and New Mexico during the time when he wrote his most famous books, including The Monkey Wrench Gang and Desert Solitaire. Prentice's nonfiction account of what the journey taught him about Abbey, the Southwest, and himself has now been published in the book Finding Abbey. 
so I've been to Tucson a few times. Both times it was to go visit the special collections library that you have, and you all have a beautiful, beautiful collection. But I would go there and take out the different Abbey boxes, and you'd open up these boxes, and it might have letters from his kids, or it might have his journals, or it might have the original Desert Solitaire with you know corrections and edits on it, and then you know you're you're dealing with this really uh, fine paper, and you're you know looking at these words that you know I've read 30, I guess 25 years ago, words that you know led me to becoming a, or wanting to become a desert rat and wanting to become a writer. That was one of my favorite things because you get to see all sorts of things. I got to read his thesis on anarchism and violence. I got to read an unpublished novel of his called City of Dreadful Night, which is uh, unpublished for a pretty good reason. It's not the best book he has or anywhere close to it. But it, uh, going to Tucson has been great. Just get to wander through the, the, the landscape that Abby lived in and died in and, and see how it changed and just see how Tucson, just like most cities in America, are just growing and growing and growing and swallowing up their landscape around them. To put things in perspective, let's share with our listeners the story of how Edward Abbey first came into your life. I was a senior in college at Western State College in Gunnison, Colorado, and my best friend, House, H-A-U-S, came home from school one day and he said, hey, you got to read this book. And he and I were ski friends, but we were not really reader friends. We didn't really share a lot of books. This is the only book I remember him ever giving me. But I remember sitting out in my backyard on a a summer day and just reading Desert Solitaire. And I'd been to the Moab Desert before, but I'd never read about it. And Abby's words showed me the desert in a new light. They showed me to protect the desert in ways I'd never even considered. And they also just spoke to me as a reader. He, he wrote like a human, like someone that I was hanging out with, like a, a friend of mine, rather than someone who was too, was too stuffy. So I could just access the words, get transported to that landscape, and, and want to care for it and maintain it and protect it. So reading Desert Solitaire for the first time as a senior in college just kind of transformed my view on the desert, but also my view on what writing could be. Let's talk about the legend of Abby's passing and his burial. Uh, for those who've never heard the story before, how would you tell it? In 1989, Abby turned uh, 62, and he had been sick with esophageal varices, which is, think of like varicose veins, but think of those in your esophagus. So your veins are really close to the the inside of your esophagus. So he was having these bleeds, these internal bleeds, and he went to the hospital in Tucson, and they they tried to fix them all up, um, but unfortunately it didn't work, and he was still bleeding. So he got stolen out of the hospital by his best friend, Jack Loeffler, and he went out into a, uh, an area outside of Tucson to try to die, and that didn't work. So he then retreated back to his writing cabin where he did die. Then two of his friends and two of his in-laws drove him out into a desert outside of Tucson, and they dug a, a hole, and they illegally buried him. And that's kind of the, the mystery or or telling of, of his death story. It can, I could t- talk about it for the next half hour, but that's the short condensed version. 
In chapter 23 of your book, you put together a list of some of the pointers or possible details that we may or may not know about where Edward Abbey is buried. Um, these include on a hillside, in a place where Abbey would be able to see no roads, near a volcanic cap rock, near a Palo Verde tree, near basalt boulders, and facing west. I love those details. There are a few more, but if Edward Abbey didn't want anyone to know where he was buried, then how do you justify the title and the quest of your book, Finding Abbey? First off, early in the process, my best friend House, he and I talked about the finding of the grave. And the first thing we realized was that if finding the grave mattered to the book, then the book was not very well written. So this book is titled Finding Abbey because really what I'm after is finding out who Edward Abbey was. And the reason I care about that is because I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. Should I live in the city where I was working in Grand Rapids, Michigan, or should I quit my drop job and move back to the mountains? So the real quest is a search for understanding. It's a search for place. It's a search for talking with a ghost mentor. So the search for the grave is really just an avenue to get to learn about who Edward Abbey was and what he might offer as advice. Now, that said, even though I say it's just an avenue for that, if, if you start a quest, I think you have to invest in it. So when I go searching for the grave, I, I do it genuinely. But again, that's not the driving impulse. The driving impulse is to reflect on my own life by looking at this ghost mentor I have. I also, you know, respect and understand that some people might not love that I go looking for the grave. Luckily, Abby's closest friends were very supportive of the project. I had a chance later to uh, meet his final wife, Clark, and, and she was nothing but wonderful. So I was, I was trying to be very respectful to the family, to the friends, to the spirit of Edward Abbey. Uh, and hopefully I did that. I'm sure some people would be disappointed, but hopefully most uh, see what I was doing and enjoy the process. <laughs> well, you did get access to, as you mentioned, four or five of the people who are closest to Edward Abbey in the final decades of his life. So pick one of Edward Abbey's friends and tell us about meeting them. I could spend all day talking just about the, the friends of Abbey's. They were spectacular people. But my first interview, I remember being terrified. Here I am going to meet one of these iconic men of the West, one of these great friends of Edward Abbey. And uh, you meet Jack Loeffler, and he's a big, stout, powerful man. But he, he invited me in the house, and this man was filled with laughter. And we just ended up talking and laughing, and, and he would reminisce for two or three hours. But my favorite thing he talked about, and it's something in the book, is this idea of, of Edward Abbey on one hand being this spectacular environmental thinker, spectacular writer, but also him being at times pretty lousy, uh, in, in marriage, being potentially racist, uh, saying some, some things that maybe I wouldn't agree with. And I, I asked Jack about that. And Jack brought up this idea of, quote, conflicting absolutes. It allows us to see how Abby can be both great and questionable in the same exact instance. Loeffler brought up this example where Abby did not love illegal immigrants coming in from Mexico. And he also did not like uranium mines. But yet when Hispanic workers in southern Arizona were trying to fight against the uranium mines, he very actively supported them and donated money to them. Because 
he realized that you know he might not like uh, immigrants coming over from Mexico and he might not like uranium miners, but these are workers being exploited. So I, I just loved Loeffler talking about that idea of those conflicting absolutes of, of Edward Abbey and, and of all of us. Tell us about something else that changed your perspective on Edward Abbey that you discovered as you retraced his steps through the Southwest. One of the things is the loyalty of his friends. Every single one of the people I talked with were just amazingly loyal. And they protected Abbey. They wanted to protect uh, how we view him today. And they all deeply, deeply love a man who died in 1989. Uh, Doug Peacock and Ken Slight and David Peterson and Jack Loeffler were just so deeply connected with Abby, with his ideas, with his writing, but really with just him as a human, that that was one of the things that really helped me see him not as a famous writer, but as just a genuine friend. And it made me recognize that whatever he had done specifically, he had made friends for life, and those friends were willing to defend him forever. What do you think Edward Abbey's legacy is right now in 2015? I think especially after the 2001 terrorist attacks, it's a lot harder to just put Abbey in in a single spot because he's so important for monkey wrenching or eco-sabotage. But now in this age of terrorism, we have a much deeper discussion about what is eco-sabotage and what is eco-terrorism. So I think he helps complicate but also gets complicated by that discussion. Another spot that I don't think is often talked about as much, especially in this era of climate change, is Abby's thoughts on overpopulation and how America really needs to view how we're overpopulating our lands and our resources. I think part of Abby's problem is he looks at overpopulation from an American standpoint rather than from a global standpoint. So immigration doesn't really matter if the whole earth is overburdened with people. So I think environmental sabotage, monkey wrenching, and overpopulation are some of the big legacies he leaves behind. So Sean Prentice, in searching for Edward Abbey's grave, you may not have found it itself, but what did you find? I found a home. So I started this journey to figure out, I have a career job in a great university. Do I stay there or do I give it up? And this long process of searching for Abby's grave, this long process of studying Abby, really made me question what I could learn from him. And by the end, I realized that what was most important was not the job. What was most important was finding a place to call home. And I'd spent 18 years of my life traveling around the West. I'd lived, I think I've lived in 15 different states. But as soon as the book was done or soon thereafter, I met my future wife, Sarah, and we decided to find a mountain home. And uh, I got lucky enough to find a, a university job in Vermont. We very quickly sunk our roots really deeply in this landscape. And now I'm talking with you from my office, and I look over this small cove on a small lake in northern Vermont, and I've got a beaver lodge right across from me and a, a loon nest with nesting loons maybe 50 yards away. So what this book did is it forced me to really decide how I wanted to live my life and where I wanted to live it and who I wanted to live it with. And, uh, and then in one of those beautiful moments, I, I found my wife. I found my place. And now we're hoping to stay here for a really, really long period of time. 
tens and tens of years rather than a year or two. So I think what I, what I found through the writing of the book was home. Sean Prentice wrote Finding Abby, published by the University of New Mexico Press. There's an excerpt on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Reporter Zach Baker has a love for classic automobiles, and a gathering in Tucson gave him a chance to talk with attendees about the lasting appeal of these vintage machines. Well, I'll tell you what, my little grandson, I would go to a car show and I'd always bring him home a street ride shirt. He got to where he wouldn't go anywhere unless he had a street ride shirt on. So my my daughter, refuse to give him any more street ride shirts. That's Frank Kalbaugh sitting in front of a Woody station wagon on the University of Arizona Mall. Everyone is here for the Tucson Street Rod Association's 41st annual get-together called Rodder's Days. Hundreds of old cars are parked in lines on the grass. John Sipe is the organizer of this year's event. He says it's hard to nail down a definition of a street rod. Well, that's a tough one because everybody's got a different... uh a different theory on that, but it's uh, older cars that have uh, been resurrected. Uh, some have uh, stock engines, and, but a lot of them have high-performance engines. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, work goes into straightening the bodies out and painting and upholstery and all the different things that uh, go into that. The minimum age of the cars for the show is 43. Nothing made after 1972 is on the lawn, in terms of cars at least. Since age is the only requirement to showcase a vehicle, there are a lot of different kinds of cars to see, like Frank's 1957 Country Squire. He likes that his Woody station wagon is so distinct. It's one of 62 known to exist, so it's, it's not just an old station wagon. It's fairly rare. And my wife paid a lot of money for it. It's, yeah, I enjoyed it. Other uncommon cars on display include Ron Rice's 1939 Ford Convertible Coupe, He searched seven years to find this car. One of its features is its rumble seat that Rice calls the mother-in-law seat. Instead of a trunk lid, right behind the convertible top is a a lid that swings the opposite direction, and underneath that lid is a seat for an extra two passengers. And have you put your mother-in-law in in the back seat? My mother-in-law has ridden in the back of this car. Uh, Several of my great-nephews and niece have have ridden in the back of the car. My wife and a lot of friends have ridden in the back, and I've been back there too. It's actually a lot of fun. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Zach Baker. Most of us have memories of our childhood behavior that we would rather forget, even some that contain lessons that help shape us as adults. Molly McCloy is a teacher and writer in Tucson who has contributed to Slate, Nerve, and Swink. She's also a three-time winner of the Moth Story Slam in New York City. Here is McCloy's recollection of a time when a piece of foam rubber came between her and her sense of right and wrong. So it's 1978, and I'm eight years old, and like any good tomboy, I want to own a Nerf football. It takes me a while to get one, though, because in my family, our allowance is 10 cents per year in our age, so I'm only making 80 cents a week. The four weeks it takes to save up for the football seems like a lifetime, 
until finally, finally, at last, I'm playing for the first time with my brand new orange football with a small group of boys in the school courtyard. And with us is this one boy named Charlie whose clothes are kind of dirty, and he gets called out as worthless every day by our mean teacher. And he's also terrible at football. Every time he gets the ball, he kicks it way out of bounds, and someone else has to run and get it. So I tell him, hey, Charlie, it's my ball. I don't want you to kick it anymore. Just throw it, okay? Sure enough, next time the ball comes to Charlie, he looks at me and gives the ball a big, horrible, awkward kick, and it flies into the air up and up until it lands right on the roof of one of the school buildings. Nowadays, a holiday would be declared and a helicopter would be sent in and there would be a local TV news story. But this was 1978 when kids were left on their own. So someone ran and got the janitor who looked up at the ball on the roof and said, I'm not going up there. And so it was gone. Just like that, on the very first day we played with it, my hard-earned football. I went home and told my dad about it, foolishly hoping he'd buy me a new one. Instead, he said, I think you ought to talk to the little bastard who kicked your football. Back then, I trusted my dad's judgment about resolving social conflicts. So I became this enforcer. I started sending Charlie threatening notes. Give me $3 for my football or else. I told you not to kick it. This went on for two years. If you do the math, you'll see that I probably should have just saved up for another football but I wanted to force Charlie to right his wrong. And then I made the mistake of telling him that I was gonna punch him three times, once for every dollar. And we ended up with me pinning him against some school building, him wincing, and me wincing too, because I told him I'd punch him and I didn't really wanna punch him, but now I had to follow through. I was only able to get myself to punch him once and then I let him go. But it got back to the principal and she brought me into her office to scream at me for 20 minutes straight. But even that didn't stop me. And strangely enough, years later, she popped up again, this grade school principal, at my yoga class when I was in my 20s. And she actually looked kind of hot. And I'll just say to you now that if your grade school principal pops up in your yoga class and you think she looks kind of hot, don't say to her, hey, you were my grade school principal. Anyway, finally, fifth grade came and I had a new teacher. My desk was right next to hers because I was always in trouble. And one day when I was being kept after school, I noticed this letter on her desk. And it was a letter from Charlie's mom. It said, look, I'm a single mom and I work two jobs and I don't have time to protect my son from this girl. And I suddenly imagined myself as Charlie's mom in this dark house somewhere trying to protect my child. And I imagined Charlie not as this jerk who had ruined my life by kicking my football, but as this poor little kid who was terrified of this girl who was me, the bully. Next week, we'll feature an interview and more stories from Molly McCloy. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can now find our podcasts on iTunes. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore.